All right, so tonight is week six, Eden to New Jerusalem, and we are going to see that the dwelling place of God is central to the Bible's storyline. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a trip through the Bible, and that's what we're going to do every week. We're just going to keep taking a trip through the Bible and seeing a new theme, and tonight that theme is the dwelling place of God. And at the end, I'm going to draw out some lessons for us from this theme. And as we think about this, um, this theme of God's dwelling, what I want to do is I want to begin with the end in mind. So I want to take you right all the way to the end of the Bible. So if you'll turn in your Bibles, uh, go all the way to the back to Revelation chapter 21. And actually, well, I would like you to turn to your Bible. It is on your handout, so you can look there too, but... I love having you turn to your Bibles. So Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. Now this is, this is a vision that's being provided by an angel to the Apostle John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, The new Jerusalem, mark that, underline that, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. There is so much that we could unpack from those four verses. Not the least of which, thinking now of Tom Hartman who died Eight days ago, Kevin Everson, who we prayed for on Sunday, died on Monday. Death will be no more. Grief and pain and crying will be no more, which is remarkable. I would encourage you to continue reading this story when you go home tonight. Read through chapter 21 in chapter 22 to see what the full end of the story looks like. And of course, in one sense, it really isn't the end of the story, is it? It's really the beginning of a story. What is happening in Revelation chapter 21 is a description merely of the end of this age and our movement into a new age in the overall kingdom plan of God. That's what we keep saying here, but I want to make sure that we all know it, right? That this place doesn't go away. We're not going to some other place. We will be coming back to this place fully restored and recreated. This will be the new earth with a new heavens. So it's really a new beginning that we're seeing here, which makes much more sense, and we can see it more clearly when we turn to the beginning of the story of the Bible. And when we do that, we see how the book covers of our Bible, if you will, Genesis chapters 1 through 3 and Revelation chapter 22, make a whole lot of, it makes a whole lot of sense that you see the, the similarities and the patterns. If you just pulled the guts of a Bible out and smushed those 
ends together, you would see how very similar that they are. And as we now expand them back out and go through the story, which we've done before, what I think is really, really exciting about the Bible is there's so many themes that run through it. And every time you go through it, you can see something different by looking at it from a different angle. It's like, um, are, are there any fans of Christopher Nolan here? The, the director and filmmaker Christopher Nolan. I love Christopher Nolan. And he's got a movie called Dunkirk. And in that movie, he takes you through the exact same period of time, but he does it in the air and then on the sea and then on the land. And by being in those, seeing those different angles, you see completely different parts of the same story, even as you see the story overlapping in those different parts as he takes you through each angle. That's what you do when you go through the Bible and you do biblical theology with different themes. So I hope what you don't feel is wait a second, I feel like we've already talked about that. Well, that's because we have, but we're looking at it from a different angle. So we're going to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 in the garden. And, and what are our four major movements in the Bible? What are the four major movements? Rescue and new creation. Yes. So we're going back to creation. We learned from Genesis 1 and 2 that God created all things. And then specifically created Eden, the garden, as a place for man and God to dwell. Eden is God's divine residence as well as a place for him to coexist and be present and in friendship and fellowship with humanity. We see it played out in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze where what is described, what follows, seems to be pretty clearly describing that it was God's practice to dwell with man in this way. And when we see this word walking throughout the story, it seems to bear out this characteristic of God dwelling with the people whom he created. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. Deuteronomy 23, 14, for Yahweh your God walks throughout your camp to protect you and deliver your enemies to you. So your encampments therefore must be holy. 2 Samuel 7, verses 6 and 7. From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling in all my journeys with the Israelites, dwelling among his people. Have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? There's more here in Genesis about this dwelling, about this dwelling place. It's not just any space, it is a special place because God is there. And he has placed man, Adam, there to cultivate and keep that space where he is going to dwell with them, Genesis 2.15. Yahweh God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. Adam placed there to worship God, to serve and to keep the Eden Garden. That's Golden Gay's translation in the brand new Bible, the Bible for everyone. Adam has placed her to worship God, to serve and keep the Eden Garden, and to spread his presence from that sacred site to the remainder of God's creation. If it is that we're to have dominion over the earth, and we're supposed to spread, right, press this out, push this out, be fruitful and multiply and cover the earth, 
If the idea of Eden was man is dwelling there and God is dwelling with him, doesn't it make sense that then it is to press the presence of God in that coexistence over the whole earth, to press that sacred site, if you will, to the remainder of God's creation, to the remainder of the land that God has brought into, into existence, all flowing from Eden, God's initial sacred site. There are many scholars that believe that part of what Adam was tasked with in this was to serve God in the Eden garden and protect this dwelling place from any unclean thing as he worshiped and expanded God's presence place. Does that sound familiar? Who later in the scriptures was tasked to take care of a special place where God dwelt to keep it clean from defilement and to make sure that worship was occurring and to keep and to guard it? What does that sound like? Sounds like a priest. Sounds like a priest in a tabernacle or a sanctuary or a temple. So therefore, Eden is like this very first temple in the world. In this way, just as we saw in Revelation 21, a new holy city coming down out of the heavenly realms to envelop the earth, isn't that exactly what's happening at the very beginning? So creation, God's dwelling place, then what happens? The fall. So as we reviewed many times before, Adam fails in his charge as a good priest, right? He fails to guard the dwelling place of God. He allows a serpent to defile the garden. And because Adam failed the Eden garden, the dwelling place of God, his temple is now defiled. Not only that, but ultimately they have failed to worship God as the priest he created them to be. In response, they are then deprived of their priestly status and expelled from the sanctuary. Alexander, uh, Desmond Alexander writes in his book entitled Eden to New Jerusalem, an introduction to biblical theology, no longer do they have immediate access to God. No longer do they live within the garden temple. All importantly, their actions jeopardize the fulfillment of God's blueprint that the whole earth should become a garden city. And we know in the following chapters of Genesis that humanity, instead of spreading to fill the earth as God's image bears, right? Instead, they grow in violence and wickedness and spread that over the earth. And so what does God do in response? He sets about to recreate the place where he would dwell. How does he do that? Through a flood to cleanse the defiled space through the line of Noah. The receding waters provide a new beginning but human nature has not changed. People still have a propensity to sin and defile the earth. And sadly, like Adam, Noah's offspring fail in their charge. And in a remarkably ironic situation in Genesis 11, instead of filling the earth by expanding the Eden garden over the earth, what do they do? They revolt, but what do they do? How do they revolt? They created a tower. So isn't this incredibly ironic? I've never seen this before. Right. So instead of, right, what they were supposed to do is spread out and cover the earth. And instead what they do is centralize and try and build and gain access to God in an exact reversal of what God intended them to do. Never seen that before with the Tower of Babel in a connection with what their charge was. They're reversing God's plan. God is interested in making the whole earth his dwelling place by filling it, Exodus 19.6, with a kingdom of priests and a holy 
nation. But Babel represents an attempt to access heaven and avoid filling the earth. One author puts it this way. It represents the antithesis of what God intends. In light of the original creation project, Babel is a stark reminder of how far humanity had fallen and how perverted human nature had become. God's original blueprint is for the whole earth to become a temple city filled with people who have a holy or priestly status. And tragically, the actions of Adam and Eve endanger the fulfillment of this project. And yet, in spite of this, God graciously and mercifully embarks on a lengthy process designed to reverse this setback and bring to, to completion his creation scheme. So the first step in doing that is through the tabernacle. So, okay, you have all these handouts. So the first, first step is find that one. See that one, the tent-like tabernacle. In Genesis 12, immediately following the Babel event, God sought out Abraham. Reading on in the story, we understand that through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, promises are set in motion for God once again to dwell on the earth, right? So do you see right, like this, the common threads of the story, but now we're just looking at this different angle to see about God wanting to dwell with his people. Through the patriarchs, God communes with them through many sacrificial sites or sanctuaries. Two examples of this include Mount Moriah in Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac and, and the test and the provision of a sacrifice. And then in Bethel in Genesis 28, the story of Jacob and his dream on the rock, this place of blessing. And we know that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob then end up in Egypt. The beginning of Exodus, we see that the Israelites were in part fulfilling the command God gave to Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Grow as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. However, the people do not find favor with the Pharaoh, as we know, and all that that meant. So God sends Moses as his messenger, and God miraculously and powerfully rescues his people. Then in Exodus 19, which we've heard already, he establishes a covenant with Israel, calling them to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to be priest kings, fulfilling the role that God had intended all along for humanity and his people. But the question is, how is God going to dwell with his people now? So God provides a solution and commissions the building of a special tent. The whole second half of Exodus speaks in great detail to this tent that you can now see before you in an image. We won't go into all the details, but the tent was to have three distinct areas. Here's how one author summarizes the structure. A curtain barrier formed an enclosed rectangular courtyard with an entrance on the east side. That's important. Inside this courtyard stood the tabernacle, a large tent divided into two sections. Entered from the east, the first room of the tent was the holy place. In this part stood the menorah, the table of the showbread, and the incense altar. A pair of curtains embroidered with the cherubim separated the holy place from the holy of holies. This latter room was the inner sanctum wherein was placed the Ark of the Covenant. This rectangular box served a double function, both the foot, uh, being both the footstool of a throne and a chest. Understood as a footstool, the Ark of the Covenant extends the heavenly throne. And when you think heavenly here, the, the semantic range of that word can mean heavenlies as in skies. So when, when you read in Genesis, you know, the, the, the kind of the heavenly realm, the, the firmament above and the deeps below. 
So it can, it can be the skies like we think of like the skies. But most often in the scriptures, actually, it speaks to a heavenly realm. It's a realm where transcendent things or transcendent beings uh, reside. And, and most often that's what the Bible is talking about, is, is a heavenly realm. So we don't need, when it says, you know, new heavens, it's not necessarily I'm looking up to see someplace new. It can mean that, but it also means this unseen realm of angels and God and the Spirit. Consequently, let me step back. Understood as a footstool, the Ark of the Covenant extends the heavenly throne to the earth. This is where the divine king's feet touch the earth, so the tabernacle links the heavenly realm and the earth. See, this was the problem, right? What had happened in the fall was these two realms were meant to coexist. God is dwelling. He's dwelling with the humanity and the creation that he's created. They overlap. And the fall tears that apart. And so now God has to come up with a way that how can I be with my people whom I've created, who I want to dwell with again? And the problem is, They're unclean, they're not holy, they're sinful. I am holy, and so I have to create a sacred space where we can dwell and be together. And so the tabernacle becomes this place where the realms can overlap. And here in this tabernacle, we see pictures of Eden, how aspects of this special tent link into God's plans for the earth, the cherubim guarding the holy of holies, an entrance from the east, Like Adam, the the Levitical priests are instructed to serve and to guard. It is to be God's dwelling place. And certainly all the decorations on the inside of the tabernacle are reminiscent of Eden. When it is finally erected, we see God's glory filling the tent and remaining within it. Exodus 40, verses 34 and 35. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. Moses was unable to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud rested on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So through their journey in the wilderness to the promised land, the divine presence, which appeared as a cloud by day and fire by night, see Numbers 9, was intimately associated with the tabernacle. This tabernacle also shows us that the God of the universe resides now with one people or nation. An idea we're going to pick up next week in the theme on the people of God. Remember, you can raise your hand if you have a question. If something's not clear, you can stop me. We're going to roll fast, but if I'm going too fast, just raise your hands. Slow me down. We've got a lot of text we're going to read too. I wanted to give you lots of scripture so you could see the places in the story because that's the best way to see the theme. So, I do want you to understand, right, because if you hear like God's presence, his glory fills the tent and the tabernacle or his feet are on the ark, right? What's not being suggested is that God has somehow limited himself. Yahweh God has limited himself and, and his presence only dwells in the tent in this way when the glory of Yahweh is filling the tent or the tabernacle. Um, God is everywhere at all times, at once. He's manifesting his presence in a way that we can understand and at times see, as we see in the story of the Old Testament. It's not taking away from his omnipresence. The ark just is identified as a footstool in this idea of a heavenly throne. 
And so we see if, if you look at your, uh, I have a copy of the handout. Here we go. We see some of the similarities between Eden and the later tabernacle and then, and then the temple. Both the Garden of Eden and the later tabernacle and temple are entered only from the east, both regarded by cherubim. The tabernacle menorah lampstand, I think, symbolizes the tree of life present in the garden. Both contain pure gold and precious jewels. We see in Genesis, the narrative says Yahweh is walking in the garden, just as he's later described as walking in the midst of Israel's tabernacle and temple, both Eden and these later sanctuaries being portrayed as God's own dwelling place with human beings. So we see those strong links. Now there's, obviously we're going through this quickly and there's a lot more that we could dig into in this story, but we want to just at least take away the tabernacle was a small scale model and symbolic reminder to Israel that God's glorious presence would eventually fill the whole cosmos and that that cosmos would be a container for God's glory and not, it wouldn't be just some mere kind of architectural constructed thing, right? Is it, um, help me remember, is it, is it David or Solomon? I think it's Solomon at the dedication of the temple when he says, do we really think that this could possibly contain the presence of God? Right? Like he, kn- he knows, he understands that that's not happening. And so there's this, there's this beauty that we're seeing in the story at this point and, and trying to imagine yourself an Israelite at this point to understand and how much you'd be longing for. And, and, I, and I would imagine all of us long for so often, I think almost on a, on a daily basis, really, I, I'm longing to feel and experience and know the presence of God. And the beauty of what this is representing, not just for them, but seeing forward into the future for what God is meaning to do to dwell across the entire earth. So we're going to see that continue to get kind of unfurled here as we go through the story. Now we're going to head towards the Jerusalem temple. So this is the tabernacle. We're headed towards a more permanent structure in the temple. In Joshua 8, we see that some of the tribes settle in the land that God had promised them and they set up the tabernacle at Shiloh. In 1 Samuel, we encounter a tragic event where God abandons that sanctuary at Shiloh. The tragic significance of this event is conveyed by the wife of Phineas when she names her soon-to-be orphan son Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. As the story carries on, the shepherd David is anointed and appointed as the king of Israel, and he subsequently retakes Jerusalem, restoring the Ark of the Covenant, the dwelling place of God, to the city, pitching a tent for it. Here, God has chosen his new earthly dwelling place in the city where the king of Israel now lives. David, though, sees a problem with this situation. He laments in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. When the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. David believes that his residence should not be more grand than the place where the ark of God resides, which is, of course, the presence of Yahweh God. And even though David desires to build God a grand house, God turns that sentiment on David, declaring that he will build a house, God will build a house, a dynasty for David, and and that it is David's son that will build a house, a physical house for God. So turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 
2 Samuel chapter 7. Beginning in verse 8. So now, this is, so this is Yahweh speaking through Nathan. So now, this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what Yahweh of heaven's armies says. I took you from the pasture from tending the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. Yahweh declares to you, Yahweh himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words in this entire vision to David. So it is that David's son Solomon finally builds the temple. So now look at this picture. So this is Solomon's temple, and you can Take a look at that later, and there's all kinds of descriptions. These pictures, by the way, are from the ESV Study Bible. That's where I I grab these from online, Um, and that's a free resource online. You can go and look at the ESV Study Bible, and you can see even more illustrations, you know, up-close pictures of the Holy of Holies and this inner sanctuary, and as well as the entire temple courtyard that Solomon built. Um, But that is a picture now of the progression from tabernacle to temple. Now watch what happens at the dedication of the completed temple. Turn to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings 8. Did anybody ever, like when you were little, did you ever have Bible drill? You know, like in chapel or at camp or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, you're just like, okay, 1 Kings 8, got it! (laughs) 1 Kings 8, 1. At that time, Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the tribal heads and the ancestral leaders of the Israelites before him at Jerusalem in order to bring the ark of Yahweh's covenant from the city of David, that is, Zion. So all the men of Israel were assembled in the presence of King Solomon in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month at the festival. All the elders of Israel came, and the priests picked up the ark. The priests and the Levites brought the Ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and the holy utensils that were in the tent. King Solomon and the entire congregation of Israel, who had gathered around him and were with him in front of the Ark, were sacrificing sheep, goats, and cattle that could not be counted or numbered because there were so many. Why, why did there need to be so many? Because the sins of the people were great. Right? We, 
I said this in a sermon, I don't know, one, two, three weeks back of like we come out of uh, at, the begin, at, at the end of Numbers, the Lord is speaking from the tent and at the end of Leviticus, the Lord is speaking in the tent. And so the entire sacrificial system made it so that Moses could now enter into the presence of God, the defilement being cleaned. And that's what's happening here. The priest brought the Ark of Yahweh's covenant to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place beneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim were spreading their wings over the place of the Ark so that the cherubim covered the Ark and its poles from above. The poles were so long that their ends were seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they were not seen from, the, from outside the sanctuary. They are still there today. Nothing was in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had put there at Horeb where Yahweh made a covenant with the Israelites when they came out of the land of Egypt. When the priests came out of the holy place, the cloud filled Yahweh's temple. And because of the cloud, the priests were not able to continue ministering for the glory of Yahweh filled the temple. Then Solomon said, Yahweh said that he would dwell in total darkness. I have indeed built an exalted temple for you, a place for your dwelling forever. And so here we see the same language of God's glory filling the temple that we saw earlier in Exodus 40 when it filled the tabernacle, which reveals that the Jerusalem temple has now superseded the tabernacle. When this happens, the temple replaces the tabernacle as God's earthly dwelling and the reflections of Eden, just as we're seeing in the tabernacle, are all now, also now seen in this permanent structure. And the Psalms now portray this idea of God's dwelling here and the people's longing for this place in so many places. An entire section of the Psalter, uh, Psalms 120 to 134, are songs used specifically by those who are sending the mount up to Jerusalem as they're making their way to come into the presence of of Yahweh. Psalm 78, 67 and 69. He rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. He chose instead the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. He built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth that he established forever. Psalm 132, 13 and 14. For Yahweh has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his home. This is my resting place forever. I will make my home here because I have desired it. So Yahweh chooses Jerusalem as his dwelling place. Since God's creation project is to create a temple city that would cover the whole earth, it is easy to see how Jerusalem is viewed as partially fulfilling God's plan. The project is moving forward. Psalm 48, Yahweh is great and highly praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain rising splendidly is the joy of the whole earth. Mount Zion, the summit of Zephon, is the city of the great king. God is known as a stronghold in its citadels. Go, go around Zion and circle it. Count its towers. Note its ramparts. Tour its citadels so that you can tell a future generation, this God, our God forever and ever, he will always lead us. So Mount Zion is now blessed as the city of the great king, the great God of Israel, Yahweh, his presence dwelling in the temple and in the city among the people. And for 400 years, through righteous kings and evil kings, the Jerusalem temple survived. Eventually, the accumulated failure of the kings and citizens of Jerusalem leads to the destruction of the temple and the overthrow of the city by the Babylonians 
Israel 1 highlights the discrepancy between what the people of God were to be as holy, righteous, city, temple, dwelling people and what they actually looked like. Isaiah chapter 1. Turn to Isaiah. Isaiah 1. Beginning in verse 4, and then I'm going to hop down to verses 10 through 15. O sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, brood of evildoers, depraved children, they have abandoned Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned their backs on Him. Verse 10, hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me, asks Yahweh. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I, I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and your prescribed festivals. It's, it's, there's an irony there, isn't it? I mean, one could say, well, these aren't our festivals. You're the one who made them, but that's not exactly what God is saying, right? It's, it's that the other, the other text um, comes to mind that his people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what God is looking at here. That's why all the other things are detestable. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Which makes me, which makes me think, so this, this complete parentheses, um, haven't seen, thought of this connection before. When Peter is instructing a husband to live with a wife and tells him to live with her in an understanding way, uh, otherwise, and as a fellow heir of the grace of life, otherwise, what does he say? Your prayers are going to be hindered. It, I didn't see before that that has its root all the way back in Isaiah, right? So. Like so often, if I've, if I've counseled, a, some man has come to meet with me in my study over the years and he's talking about difficulty in his marriage with his wife, the first thing I'll say is, or difficulty in his prayer life, the first thing I'll say is, how's your relationship with your wife? Well, you know, it's a, I don't know, it's a little bit rough lately. And well, All right, you knucklehead. You remember Peter's instruction? God's sitting, looking at you, saying, what, dude, Get things straightened out with her because I'm not going to listen to you until you do. Your prayers are going to hit the ceiling. They're going to be hindered. And John says it in a similar way, right? Like, how can you say you love him whom you have seen, whom you have not seen, when you don't love him whom you have seen? There's a direct correlation between relationships horizontally and our relationship vertically. Okay, that was for free. Close parentheses. No. Yes, it's okay. <laughs> um, and maybe, you, maybe you'll get to this. But 
It, it seems to. It, it seems, seems to, to imply you that. Yeah. It's not clear. They don't explicitly say that, right? But anyway, so we have Adam and Eve with God in the garden. We have Solomon at the temple. God's presence here on earth at the temple with the Israelites. And then, of course, you're reading here in Isaiah about how they fall away. So the question that I have is, when you come to the new heavens and the new earth, we have the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21. Mm-hmm. If all these other times in which God dwelt with people, he was Solomon's little, like, next-door neighbor, didn't work, why would it work in, uh, with the New Jerusalem and the New Earth? That's a great question. Can we come back to that at the end? Sure. So don't, don't let me forget, because we're going we're gonna to get all the way there. Yes? Maybe because when we see him, we shall be like him. Well, I guess there's an answer. <laughs> I think that, that, that could be it. Right, it's part of what's bound up in your question. I don't want to import... I don't want to import into your question, but as part of what is bound up in your question is what's to say it can't happen again? Is that is that part of what you're? Yeah, I mean, I think. I don't want to read into your question. Well, I, so I think it's clear that you know God has continuously reached out to man, and man still always seems to fall into sin, no matter how many blessings you know God does. You know, it kind of reminds me of when Jesus. Uh, I forgot where it is, but uh, Jesus just got done performing a whole bunch of miracles. And then, I think it was the Pharisee, somebody came to him and said, well, if you just do one more miracle, you know, we will believe. Then we'll believe, yeah. Uh, you yeah. know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I can't right. Exactly yeah, is it, isn't that, is, I, I think you're referring to, isn't it in John, and he says, that this people, sure this people begs yeah. me for signs, and... Yeah, I mean, he just did, a, I can't remember what he just did, yeah. but it was pretty miraculous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. right. <laughs> he had a habit of doing that, yes. If you just do one more. Right. Right? <laughs> right. And so, I mean, Yeah. And Isn't all of this about defeating sin, though? It is, but his his question is still a is still a very intriguing question because. Um, I have the same question. Right. It, it's <laughs> I, I think it's intriguing because certainly you could, and and that's why I'm pushing it back all the way to the beginning because this is the it's really the question at the beginning and the end, right? Like how how did this happen? How did one way you could ask it, and there's all kinds of ways you could ask it and create all different kinds of theological conundrums, but one way is, how could God allow? How did God, why did God plan for? I mean, why, in the first fall, of course, 
is, is really, in, in one sense, the first fall is Lucifer, is this bright, shining star, um, the Satan who falls first, and all the angels that fall with him that create the fall of man. And so, yes, there is that question that's kind of out there by scholars, theologians, and churchmen of after Revelation 22, and now we head off into the rest of all of what that story is going to be. Who's to say that that doesn't happen again, that some fall doesn't happen again? And I just don't think that the scriptures give me anything that I can answer that, you know, concretely other than trusting that God, that that is the beginning of a new heavens and new earth and that sin once and for all is vanquished and the, the, the devil and all the angels are cast into the lake of fire and, and, it, and I just trust in God's power and sovereignty that he will, that he is bringing that story to that place and will now protect in a way because this has been his plan all along. Um, yes? You know, sin, sin's not going to exist in the presence of God. And just kind of reading ahead in Romans a little bit, where, where we are on Sunday. You're reading ahead in Romans? <laughs> yes, that makes me so happy. Thank you. You get a gold star tonight. <laughs> Okay, all right. But just as I think about this conversation, it's, it's like sin's not going to exist in the presence of God, and it's like it's no longer I who do it, the sin in me. So all this rebellion is, is you know, kind of sin, so I, I just don't think that's going to exist in the presence of God when we're, when we're with him in this new, new Jerusalem. Yeah, well, and, and again, I mean, I just want to be clear and, and I think that's helpful and I think that's absolutely true. I just want to be clear that there is, in some degrees, with some questions, um, I mean to say, with some questions, there will be, um, I won't be fully satisfied. Right? And I think we just have to be okay with that. We don't have to be afraid of that. Uh, if, if, if I was to put myself as, as kind of like if we were debating partners, and, and, and I was trying to argue, and my answer to you is, well, ultimately, I just don't know. Here's what God is doing. Like, you could go, well, that's a stupid answer. That, that doesn't make any sense. So he's just going to choose now to not allow sin to somehow come into the world. Like, he allowed it and planned for it to come into All I can do is deal with the text that I have in the scriptures. I have a, a certain 20,000-foot level view in an understanding that the story that we have, the existence that we're living, ultimately in God's thinking and planning and ordaining and sovereign rule was the best of all possible worlds to bring him the most possible glory. That, that's like my very highest level understanding of this whole story of creation, fall, rescue, and restoration. So that I don't, because you could say, okay, that story happens. And then you could say, he could do that whole story again. Mm -hmm. And then again, and again, right? I mean, that's conceivable. Is it not? That's possible. But we kind of make our our confidence also in the promises, like, and we read it in Revelation 21, that, that he'll wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. 
Right. There shall be no more. And so it's like on this promise that these things will end. And so there is, a, I think, a, a, he's given us a promise and it, and it doesn't satisfy maybe the question as to, um, as to why in that answer, but there is a promise that, that it, it is true. And I think that repeats itself. Right, right. And if I, your second one where you just said you could conceive of it happening again and again, no, we can't. Because it goes against the nature of God. God has spoken, it's once and it's done. God's not, God's got to be true to his own word. So what we have, good point, yep. We may not fully understand it perfectly, but he has committed himself to his own word. So I'm in agreement with Paul, but pretty clear. Old order of things has passed away. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, yes, you're exactly right. All we know, back to your first question, all we know is humanity. All I've ever experienced is sin in a sinful, fallen world. But the created new order is God's promise. God's true to his word. He cannot go against his own word. And, and so, in that sense, I guess it, for me, it's easy. To, to, it's, it's, it's easy for me to take that at face value and say, okay, mm-hmm. doesn't mean I understand it. Right. Don't understand yeah. It completely. Yeah. But, but I think to Matthew's point, I'm, I'm finite and mortal. He's infinite and immortal. I think Brian. The scripture's time really about could another fall happen? You know, in Revelation 23. <laughs> <laughs> In one sense, and the argument Brian being brought here is is a good one. Will we will we trust his promises? Um, and it's a bit it's a bit of like um, kind of what we dealt with a few weeks ago in Romans. Does our unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Kind of this look at the covenant of well, if the promise was we're going to enter in this covenant together, you're going to be my people. You know, Paul's dealing with. So I think. I think while what your guys are saying is true, what Brian is also just bringing, bringing up, and maybe this is kind of your humanity statement, like all I know is humanity. Um, Paul was willing to entertain a somewhat conceivable objection to, well, is there really a covenant? Is God keeping his promise? If the promise was to keep a people. And when the people then sinned, is that in a sense nullifying the faithfulness of God because the promise here was you were going to have a people that wouldn't stray. You were going to, right? And so Paul then, of course, argues that isn't a valid objection to your point. So that's what I mean by conceivable is it's just like you're looking to say what are potential arguments and, and then you're right. Now, how do I get up into the, how does, how does Paul end um, Romans 11? How inscrutable are your ways <laughs> beyond figuring out so that, that's just what I'm also trying to hold is I want to hold to those promises and absolutely to his word. And I also want to just step back at times too and say, you're God. I don't understand completely um, why you do what you do. And there's things that I can understand certainly. Does that make sense? Is that? I guess, and I guess, and I just go back to the certain characteristics of God that he has revealed to us. Yeah. Oh, Absolutely. You've yeah. the proverbial question, can God create a rock too big that even he can't lift it? Which is silly. Now, that, that goes against... Right. It goes against even the concept of 
Right. It's just a silly notion. Yeah, right. God right. Beyond that, but he has made it very clear, even when he gives us covenants where he is the only one covenanting with himself. That's the point. It's, 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 it's a one-way promise. There's not a, there are certain promises from God that it's not a, if you do this, then I will this. There are some promises that are simply God 100% right. to himself. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Fully agree. Follow up on that? Yes, come Romans 6, 15 to 23 this week. So these prophecies of Isaiah move now from a historical city of Jerusalem to the new Jerusalem of the future. So in Isaiah 2, we see this future transformation is now anticipated. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of Yahweh's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion in the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation and they will never again train for war. In Isaiah 65, we see the visions of a future transformed city. Isaiah 65, verse 17. For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, for I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days, nor an old man live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at 100 years old will be mourned as a young man, and the one who misses... A hundred years will be considered cursed. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat. For my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster. For they will be a people blessed by Yahweh along with their descendants. Even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like cattle. The serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says Yahweh. Ezekiel, moving on in the story, highlights in chapters 40 to 48 of his prophetic work how even in exile, God is still committed to making the whole earth his dwelling place. He spends significant time describing this idealized temple of the future, And in a striking statement in the story thus far, his vision concludes with a renaming of the city of God. And the name of that city from that day on, Ezekiel 48, 35, from that day on will be 
Yahweh is there. Zechariah also looks forward to a transformed city in which God will dwell. Zechariah 8, verse 3. The word of Yahweh of heaven's armies came. Yahweh of heaven's armies says this, I am extremely zealous for Zion. I am jealous for her with great wrath. Yahweh says this, I will return to Zion and live in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city. The mountain of Yahweh of heaven's armies will be called the holy mountain. Yahweh of heaven's armies says this, old men and women will again sit along the streets of Jerusalem, each with a staff in hand because of advanced age. The streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in them. Yahweh of heaven's armies says this, though it may seem impossible to the remnant of this people in those days, should it also seem impossible to me? This is the declaration of Yahweh of heaven's armies. Yahweh of heaven's armies says this, I will save my people from the land of the east and the land of the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people and I will be their faithful and righteous God. In Zechariah's time under the leadership of Ezra, God's people return to Jerusalem and seek to rebuild the temple. Some of you are familiar with this story. We see in Ezra 3 that when the foundations are built, do you remember what happens? The old folks cry, right? Because they remember the glory of the past temple. And the young people are excited because there's something, two by fours and some sheetrock are at least thrown up. They rejoice because they see it as another fulfillment of God's creation plan. But further measures are needed. How will God dwell among his people once again? Turn to John chapter one. (laughs) John one. In this remarkable text, we see John going all the way back to Genesis. In the beginning was the word And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, maybe you've heard this before, uh, or maybe it'll be a good reminder to you. What is absolutely stunning to me is that last bit of verse 14, and he dwelt among us. Dwelt in the Greek language is the word for tent or tabernacle, skene. And the word that John uses here is a verbal form of that word so that what he is actually saying is that Jesus became flesh and tented, tabernacled among us. I don't know about you, but I get goosebumps when I, when I see things like this. So do you see how John is grabbing hold of Eden? He's grabbing hold of the beginning of the story And the tabernacle story, the temple stories of God dwelling with man. And he's showing how Jesus is the climax and fulfillment of this long-running story of God's relationship and dwelling with his people. 
Jesus is the temple toward which all earlier temples look and which they anticipated, right? That was the promise in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 14 that we read, that there would be a forever king that would come. It's a promise in Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13, the branch who will bear royal splendor and be a priest on the throne, right? The second Adam, the great high priest who will guard the dwelling place of God with man. Jesus claimed that forgiveness of sins now comes through him. What does that mean? We don't need a sacrificial system and a temple anymore. Thus he was taking over the function of the temple, something we see him doing in the story of the cleansing of the temple, right? He shows his authority. John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, because the temple was not fulfilling the purpose for which God had made it. So he inserts himself. Further, Jesus often refers to himself as the cornerstone of the temple. See, Mark 12, Matthew 21, Luke 20. Jesus even alludes to this in talking to the Jewish leaders, arguing with them in John 2 that he is the temple. How will the story move forward? In 2 Corinthians, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 14. Here Paul makes it clear that now the church, the people of God, are the temple of God. Do not be yoked together with those who do not believe. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Messiah have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And what agreement does the temple of God have with idols, for we are the temple of the living God. That ought to stun you. Yeah. We are the temple of the living God. Boy, it's, it's really hard after studying this this morning, studying Romans 6 this afternoon, and I'll studying this with you together tonight. It's hard not to go to Romans 6 again and say, so why would you present your members as, as slaves to unrighteousness and impurity? Why, why would you do that if you're the temple of the living God? As God said, I will dwell and walk among them. And we know where God said that, right? Because we saw that in Leviticus. We saw that in Genesis 3. We saw that in Deuteronomy I will dwell and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says Yahweh. Do not touch any unclean thing and I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says Yahweh Almighty. You see, when we believe in Jesus, when the Spirit of God enlivens our dead souls, bodies, minds, selves, so we can open our eyes, we can see the beauty of Christ, we're given the gift of faith to believe in him, we're given over, Paul will say on Sunday in Romans 6, over to a pattern of teaching. We don't, we don't get the God, we're actually given to, we're handed over to this good news. We are united with Messiah as a temple. This is just amazing, you guys. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? 
You are that Solomonic temple where the cloud is coming down and people are just falling on their faces. The Spirit of God now living in us. 1 Corinthians 6, tiny. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. Paul says further in Ephesians 2, 18-22, For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Messiah Jesus Himself as the, as the cornerstone. In Him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is why this space, if we're not in it, has no special significance. It's just material. Paul could tell us what materials. Kai could tell us what materials. I don't know what all the materials are. It's when, right, we. You said this a couple of Sunday ago. We were talking about it as elders last night. We're the church. We are the church. We are the dwelling place of God. In Him you are, you are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Which gives me great, great confidence to just hear that tonight. We're being built together, Grace Church. When I get overwhelmed, when we see things that aren't working in our church, you see things that aren't working in our church. It's a ministry, it's a Sunday morning, something, something you don't like. The fact is, we are being built together in the only place of God, by God. And notice, I, I didn't read this in the Greek this afternoon, but I think that's a present active, indicative, being, or it's a, actually, it's, an act, it's a passive, because I'm being, it's, it's being acted upon, but you notice how it's continuous? It's not done yet. So can we just all have grace there? We're being built. We haven't been built yet. It's not done. We're being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. And Paul seems to see the church as just the beginning fulfillment of the creational blueprint that God intended. Right? So do you see, like this is all just, I just love these themes. They're just kind of like, a car that starts out at like five miles an hour and it just gets going faster and faster and faster, right? And it's all going somewhere. Where is it going? New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem. Hebrews 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 13, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised. 
but they saw them from a distance. They greeted them. They confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. There's that word again, a locale for transcendent things and beings. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I'm glad you're looking forward to the city. I am your God. I will dwell with you and I will give you that place. Abraham was waiting for a city. And the author of Hebrews, which is Paul or like Paul, I don't know, is convinced that the future experience of all believers involves a city. In 1222, he refers once more to this city saying, for you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering. Later he states, we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come, Hebrews 13, 14. And then at the very end of the story, we're going right back to the beginning where we were 70 minutes ago. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. That's been the story the whole way. And he will live with them. He will live with them. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. I shall, what you said earlier, it's Brian, right? No, yes. You're a Brian too. Brian's. Sorry, got confused there. Brian's, you need to spread out. (laughs) We shall see him, that we shall all be like him, for we shall see him as he is. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, look. Oh man, I just can't. I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words... Like you said, Kyle, these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of water of life. And the one who conquers will inherit these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. I feel like we should be able to do just about anything. That's how I feel right now. I know that feeling can go. Isn't this why we read the Bible? There's, there's just such certainty that washes over me right now. Just certainty. That's true. It's going to happen. I will see him. Faith will no longer be necessary. I'll see him face to face. Paul, you'll get to build a house with Jesus, a carpenter. Imagine how great your, I mean, your houses look great now. Imagine how great they're going to look in a new heavens and a new earth. Or maybe you're not going to want to build houses anymore. Let's do something else, Jesus. (laughs) So what are some patterns in the story? Let me just take a few more minutes 
And then we'll actually finish a theme in one week. As we've gone through the story, one thing stands very clear, I think. What God intended in the garden finds its fulfillment in the New Jerusalem. G.K. Beale, one of my favorite authors. Read G.K. Beale. This is, this is his book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, A Biblical Theology of the Dwelling Place of God. Right? It is still our mission, you guys, to spread the presence. If we are the temple of God, if we have within us the spirit of God, isn't our job to go get people? Isn't what Paul says, Colossians? We want to get them transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Don't we want them to be, we're supposed to be getting more stones so the building can get bigger and bigger, right? This is a, a really, it's thick. It's thick this way and it's thick reading to read it. But G.K. Beale, you will profit from the effort. Here's what he says. Christ not only fulfills, so this is promised fulfillment, right? That's one of our tools, Christ not only fulfills all that the Old Testament temple and his prophecies represent, but that he is the unpacked meeting for which the temple existed all along. In other words, I remember Tim Porter was um, my Hebrew uh, professor, taught me Hebrew. And I was just talking to a, a classmate, classmate of mine from seminary back with Tim, and we were talking with a couple other guys and and uh, he said, didn't we learn more about biblical, uh, biblical theology from Tim than we ever did like the Hebrew language? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I remember one time, summer Hebrew, we're taking, I think it was a year or two years in three months of Hebrew. It was just grueling. And he would do a devotional before class every day. And he was talking about when Jesus um, was walking along and he was, you know, putting his hand along the, the heads of grain, right? And, and he used it as a metaphor. And and he stopped and he said, what? what if the whole reason God created grain was for that moment? He, he needed it. He knew, I'm telling a story. Um, my son's going to need an illustration. I know, grain. <laughs> we'll do grain. Jesus needs to be this representative. What if that's... Like this, like the whole reason all of this is, is just so it can build to my son. I'm not sure. It seems a bit of what G.K. Beale is arguing. He's the unpacked meaning for which the temple existed all along. It, it wasn't in and of itself something. It was right. Isn't that what Hebrew says? It, it was just a shadow of things to come. It, here's the substance. This was the shadow. Christ's establishment of the temple at his first coming and the identification of his people with him as the temple where God's tabernacle pres tabernacling presence dwells is a magnified view of the beginning form of the new creational temple. And Revelation 21 is the most ultimate, highly magnified picture of the final form of the temple that we will have this side of the consummated new cosmos. Like distance and close-up views of the earth, those are the kinds of views that we're getting of temple and the end. Promise fulfillment. Typology. We've seen typology. Remember we've said that typology is a historical event, person, or thing that God uses in redemptive history that foreshadows a clearer, greater, and fuller event, person, or thing revealed later. In our story, we have a couple examples of typology. Adam is given God's word, and he works that out in obedience, that obedience in the garden. 
So then the true purpose of these items is taken up in the patriarchs and then the priests. But the true high priest is Jesus who perfectly fulfills what God intended for Adam. Eden, sanctuaries of the patriarchs, tabernacle, Jerusalem temple, and Jesus. So you see these types. Continuity and discontinuity. A couple examples of continuity include God's original plan to fill the earth with his glorious presence. From the very beginning, God was about this, and it is something we see in Revelation that he accomplishes fully. One major discontinuity is the idea of a physical temple in Jerusalem to be constructed. Is there a temple that needs to be... Uh, sorry, Beal. Beal is helpful on this. To focus only upon a yet future physical temple as the fulfillment would be to ignore that Christ at his first coming began to fulfill this prophecy and that he will completely fulfill it in the eternal new creation. So even if there is yet to be a future physical temple built in Israel, it will only point to Christ and God as the temple in the eternal new creation pictured in Revelation 21, 22. Therefore, to focus only on a future physical temple as the fulfillment is like focusing too much on the physical picture of the temple and not sufficiently on what the picture ultimately represents. So see, it, he's just, he's saying, in short, see the discontinuity. The, the continuity we see all the way along breaks and now it's this wide open representation of God dwelling with folks. Um, 7.18, do you have five more minutes? Okay, so uh, Russ, how do I do this again? Should I just plug in instead of of wireless? I want to show you something. And then the risk of showing this to you is like, you could have showed us that five minutes instead of talked to us for an hour and 15. So, but, you know, I wanted you to see the Bible. No, it's, yeah, it's turned all the way up. I think it's supposed to be on DVD, Russ. Yeah, DVD. Okay, wait. There you go. And is it turned up? So what Well, I guess this this will teach me to test my AV before we come into a teaching session. Sorry, guys. Go home and uh, go onto YouTube and put Bible Project Temple into YouTube, and uh, you're going to love it. Let me pray first quick. Father, thanks so much for tonight, and um, you know we didn't have a lot of time to talk about what are some of the other applications. We just want to trust your spirit now to apply this to the lives of these dear brothers and sisters. We're meant to go out of here, at least with this, deeply encouraged that you mean to dwell with us and in us. And so thank you, God. Thank you so much. Jesus, thank you for taking away all of our sin and giving us your righteousness so that we can survive in the presence of a holy God and that we can carry within us your spirit. You, the Father, the Spirit, you are God, this Trinitarian God. You are good, and we love you. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys so much for your attentiveness.